0: All right, it is time for the February Patreon birthday shoutouts. I want to send huge birthday wishes to Katie M, Danny, Jen, Katie B, Megan, Marty, and Laura. So happy birthday from me here at Crimelines. Over a decade before Holly Bobo disappeared from a town outside Decaturville, Tennessee, another young woman went missing. But after Holly's kidnapping, the sheriff went on TV and said that things like this don't happen in that area. It left the family of Christy Moon wondering, had she been forgotten? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I have two quick announcements before we get to today's case. These are for upcoming events. One is my live stream with Laura Bricker from Crime Writers On. We will be discussing her book, Lie After Lie, on February 25th at 2 p.m. Central, which is 3 Eastern. The information will be in the show notes. You can watch on get vocal or the Facebook page for Crime Lines. And I hope you can join because I'm going to be taking your questions and comments from the chat to ask Laura, and it'll give you a chance to interact with her. I don't know if you listen to Crime Writers On, you definitely should, but it's just such a great opportunity, and I'm so thankful she's coming on my live stream. The other announcement is that I will be participating in a -a stream-a-thon, podcast-a-thon, Fundraiser for the Charlie Project. That is on February 20th. It is running from noon Eastern to midnight Eastern. And I'm not entirely sure yet which time slot I will have, but that information will be on social media when I do know. Wine and Crime, True Crime BS, Crime Writers On, and so many more are participating. If you don't know, the Charlie Project is a website that tells the stories of the missing. It is independently run and independently funded, and this website contains more information than just the basics that you will find on other sites like NamUs. Megan, the woman who runs the Charlie Project, knows that the more we know about a missing person, the more we care about them. They become a real person to us and not just a grainy internet photo. It's the first question I ask when I interview people for this show. Tell me about your loved one. Who are they? Most podcasters, most true crime podcasters use The Charlie Project, and it has become a full-time job for Megan, even though she offers her services entirely for free. While there will be live donations taken during the podcast-a-thon on February 20th, I'm going to link the GoFundMe in the show notes if you want to make a contribution at any time. I am a monthly donor of The Charlie Project, and you can go right to the site, thecharlieproject.org, to donate that way. I will also leave a link to a video about Megan and her work in the show notes so that you can learn more. So on to tonight's case, which is one that is featured on The Charlie Project. And I want to thank the Fall Line podcast for suggesting this case to me. It had been sent to them as a possibility for them to cover it, but it was not going to work into their schedule. Yet they knew this case needed more coverage. And I love the True Crime podcast community Because 99% of the time, that's how it works. We talk, we vent, we collaborate, and we support each other because at the end of the day, it's about getting these stories out there. This case takes place in Parsons, Tennessee, which is about five miles away from Darden, Tennessee. The area was made famous or infamous in 2011 for the kidnapping and murder of 20-year-old Holly Bobo. At the time, it was publicly stated that things like this don't happen in that area, which was quite a shock for the family of 26-year-old Christy Annette Moon, who went missing from that area over 11 years before. At the time of her disappearance in 1999, Christy lived with her boyfriend, Michael Piercy. She had two kids, an eight-year-old daughter named Kayla and a one-year-old son named Dylan. I spoke with Kayla for this episode, and I really appreciate her filling in some details for me. Little Dylan lived with his father, and shortly before she turned eight, Kayla went to live with her grandmother, Teresa. Christy made the decision to be the non-custodial parent to her kids because she was struggling with substance abuse. Kayla had such a great perspective on this that I think is important. It really touched me when I heard it. Kayla did not see this as Christy giving up her kids for drugs like some people may paint it or how it has been painted in other scenarios. What happened was Christy realized her kids were not in a good situation. She realized without family stepping in, without CPS stepping in, she realized it for herself that her kids needed to be somewhere else. And she got them out of that bad situation, even though it meant she couldn't be with them right away. Christy was making plans to get back to where she could care for her children. A step towards that, as most addicts will tell you, is to get away from the people you use with. On October 27, 1999, Christy was visiting with her family, and she said she was ready to leave Michael Piercy and that scene behind. It sounded like she planned to do it very soon, possibly even that day, because she talked about having to go to his house to get her things. Then she would come back. When Christy did not come back, it was initially assumed she changed her mind. And we've talked about that before here on Crime Lines, that cold feet situation that can happen with impending sobriety. But then Christy didn't call. She didn't make contact with her kids or her mother for a couple of days, which was very unlike her. So the family started looking for her, asking around to see who saw her last. And according to Michael, her boyfriend, he dropped Christy off at her mother Teresa's house on October 29th, two days after they had last seen her. He claimed he had not seen her since. The family then reported her missing. Christy did not have a car, so if none of her friends or her family had seen her, something was wrong. And Michael's story did not add up for the family. The property Teresa lived on was large, and it had two houses on it, hers and her mother's. Her mother and stepfather lived up the driveway from Teresa, so to get to Teresa's house, you had to pass by theirs. Teresa's stepfather was largely housebound due to post-polio syndrome, and they lived out in the country. If a car went down the driveway on their property... Teresa's stepfather would be looking out the window, wondering what was going on, and he knew Michael's car. Michael had been around before, and he said he did not see Michael drive up to the house any time in the last couple of days. And you might think, well, maybe he was in the bathroom, maybe he just didn't hear it. But they also had dogs that barked at everyone who passed by, so it seems very unlikely that someone would have gone down that driveway to Teresa's house and then turned around and went back up to the road completely undetected. But that was Michael's story, and he was sticking with it. The family then heard through the small-town grapevine that Michael still had Christie's purse, and he had left it at his father's house. Teresa called the police to give them this tip, but they didn't do anything. So a cousin of Christie's went over to the house and asked Michael's father for Christie's bag. He handed it over, and the family still has it. The police did not take it as evidence. Inside the purse were Christie's wallet, her ID, and her cigarettes it made no sense that Michael dropped her off at her mother's home and she didn't have her purse or her cigarettes with her. And even if he did, it didn't make sense that Christy would then leave on her own, leaving everything behind. Christy was not working at the time, but she did collect child support. The last check was issued in October and she never touched it. So not only did Christy not have a car to get around in, she had no money, she didn't have her ID, she had nothing. The police did conduct a search for Christy that lasted about two weeks. But the family does have the concern that Christy's involvement with drugs meant that they didn't look as hard as they would have otherwise. One of the searches conducted was of Michael's house. They found that some carpet had been pulled up and replaced, but they didn't, as far as the family knows, pull up the new carpet to then check the subflooring or to test it for blood. It does seem like quite the coincidence that Michael's girlfriend went missing and then he opted to replace his flooring at roughly the same time. There was also a small pond on Michael's property that was searched, but nothing was found as far as the family knows, and really as far as anyone knows, because there is an issue with the case file that we will get into later. Three weeks after Christie disappeared, as the investigation, such as it was, was ongoing, someone else in Michael and Christie's social circle was murdered. Christopher David Johnson was a 31-year-old tugboat operator, and he was found murdered outside of his vehicle on a rural road in Decaturville on November 19th, 1999. It was not announced at the time, but Michael Piercy was wanted for questioning in that case. He was not named a suspect. He was not named a person of interest. but. He was one of several people the police wanted to speak to who they thought had information on Chris's murder. So the police were investigating Michael in connection with Christie's disappearance, and they wanted to question him about a murder when they pulled him over on November 26, 1999. This has been characterized as a routine traffic stop due to a broken taillight. Though that story has been contradicted in some of the reporting where it says he was pulled over specifically to be questioned and other reporting saying that he was pulled over because he was suspected of another crime that occurred that day regardless of why Michael Piercy was pulled over. What we know is that he did not wait in his car like he was supposed to. He got out and immediately began shooting at the two officers, Roy Wyatt and Daryl Dremon. He hit Wyatt in the face, chest, and leg. Dremon fired back at Michael, hitting and killing him. Wyatt was transported to the hospital and spent the next four months there. His condition was touch and go for quite a while, and it was a long road to recovery. While Wyatt was still in the hospital, Daryl Dremon, his partner who had shot Michael, died in a freak accident. He was directing traffic at an accident scene when a utility pole that had been damaged in the accident fell on him, and he died from his head injuries. So the man who claimed to be the last one to see Christie, and the police officer who killed him were both now deceased, and Christie's family worried that this meant There would be no answers. There would never be a resolution. There was a glimmer of hope in November 2000, 13 months after Christie's disappearance, when Michael Piercy's family sued the city. They claimed. Excessive force was used at that traffic stop. The case included suing the estate of the deceased officer who had shot him. To break it down to the most simple form, the Piercy family claimed that the shooting was not justified because Michael was getting back into his vehicle at the time he was shot. He was trying to flee the scene. He was no longer firing at the officers and he was no longer a risk to them. Civil lawsuits are like criminal ones in the sense that there is discovery where evidence is presented. There are depositions. There is testimony and so on. This would be an opportunity to perhaps ask some of Michael's family, maybe some of his friends. What did they know, if anything, about Christie's disappearance and Chris's murder? It may be an opportunity to find out some of the information the police had learned in their investigation. But the case was dismissed a year later without any relevant information coming from it. Over the years, Christie's mom, Teresa, would Try to get updates from the police or information, but it was not forthcoming. Eventually, someone at the department told her to stop calling, let them do their job, and they would call her if they had any updates. That call has yet to come. The family got the impression that the case got shelved the night Michael Piercy died, even though Christie was still missing but we don't know for sure because they never saw the case file. All they had was a small write-up from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, something that is akin to an incident report. But being in a small town, they had no end of rumors of what happened. And they cannot completely discount these rumors as just gossip or speculation because some of the people spreading them are people who may know the truth, people in Michael and Christie's peer friend circle. There is the theory that Christie and Chris's cases are completely unrelated and that Chris's murder was due to owing money to the wrong people. It's true that they were in the same social circle, but they also ran with a tough crowd, so it's possible the two cases are not connected. But three of the theories that do get talked about connect the two. They connect the disappearance to the murder. One is that Chris knew what happened to Christy, and he was killed to keep him quiet. Another is that Michael believed Christy was cheating on him with Chris and killed both of them out of jealousy. The other is that they were both killed by either Michael or someone else for the same reason. They were working as informants for the police and possibly even wearing wires. Christie's daughter, Kayla, does not believe that her mother was working as an informant. And as far as I can tell, the police have not made a comment on this one way or the other. Kayla also does not believe Christy was seeing Chris behind Michael's back. Christy was either with her family or with Michael at pretty much all times, and it's not like she had a car to get around on her own. She wouldn't really have had the time or the means to see someone else. But that doesn't mean Michael didn't think she was. Reports from the time were that Michael was deep into meth, both selling it and using it, and his paranoia was through the roof. He thought people were watching him from the woods around his house. He thought people were out to get him. That could have fueled a false belief that Christy was cheating, or that she was informing to the police. Michael was, however, abusive to girlfriends, not just Christy, but others, and it's possible that Christy did go back to the house and try to get her stuff to leave to move back with her mother, and she was killed during a physical assault. One of the most disturbing rumors that the family has heard was that Christie's remains were then fed to a neighbor's pigs. Michael's neighbor did have a hog farm. There is no evidence to back this up. As far as we know, no cadaver dogs were taken out to that property or DNA tests run like we see in a case like the Robert Picton case. We don't see any of that having happened. It's not believed that the police followed up on this tip specifically. And you've heard me repeat that, that we don't know if the police followed up on something. We don't know if they took a tip. And that's because the original case file is gone. The department had moved buildings after Christie's disappearance, and the old building was destroyed. When the family wanted to get the file and see what was going on years down the road, they were told it must have been left behind during the move. So it was destroyed right alongside the old building. If a cold case detective decided to take a look at this, they would be starting from scratch. So let's fast forward to 2011 and the disappearance of Holly Bobo. There are a couple overlaps here in the cases, so I will give you an overview of the Holly Bobo case. If you're interested in hearing more about the case, I recommend The Generation Y and Court Junkie. Both podcasts cover the case well. I'll put the podcast names in the show notes so you can check them out when you finish this episode. So Holly Bobo was a 20-year-old nursing student in Darden, Tennessee, which is five miles away from Parsons, where Christy went missing. The school Holly attended was actually in Parsons. On April 13th, 2001, Holly woke up early to study. Around 7.45 in the morning, a neighbor heard a scream. Shortly after this, Holly's brother, Clint, woke up to their dogs barking. He looked outside and thought he saw Holly and her boyfriend arguing. He couldn't see the man well and had just made an assumption as to who it was. Holly was very upset, so Clint thought maybe they were breaking up. Clint couldn't really make out much of what they were saying, but the neighbor who heard the scream had called Holly's mom, Karen, at work to tell her about it. Karen called the house and told Clint that the man he saw with Holly was not her boyfriend and for him to get the gun and shoot him. Karen then called 911. Clint saw the man who was dressed in camo walk into the woods with Holly, and that was the last time Holly Bobo was seen alive. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigations came in and set up a command center to lead the search. Teresa, while happy for the Bobo family that Holly was being looked for appropriately, couldn't help but feel some resentment over the way Christie's case was handled. Or mishandled. She and Kayla drove to the command center to demand some answers about Christie's case. The TBI was not interested in talking with them, and the sheriff's deputy they did speak to told them there was not a lot they could do without a case file or evidence. All that was left was that one piece of paper the TBI had given the family, which wasn't much. And of course, the purse that the family had recovered themselves. And then Decatur County Sheriff Roy Wyatt made some statements to the media about Holly Bobo's disappearance. They can all be summed up as we never thought things like this could happen in our area. Now, did you catch that name of that sheriff? Roy Wyatt. That is the same man Michael Piercy nearly killed when Wyatt pulled him over. He was almost killed by the person of interest in the disappearance of a young woman, yet, 11 years later, he seems to have forgotten about it. And if he, the man who almost died, does not remember it, is there anyone in the sheriff's department? in the TBI, who is even paying attention to Christy's case anymore. This moment marked a shift in the family. Teresa was overwhelmed. Her daughter had been missing for over 11 years. No one was looking for her. There was no case file, no evidence, and no one who seemed interested in helping. People were acting like Holly was the first young woman to ever go missing from that area. Kayla, now an adult herself, started taking over that role, being the spokesperson for her mother's case and doing the media interviews. And this gave Teresa a rest. And Kayla has hit a lot of roadblocks in trying to get more coverage for her mom's case. She came up against an obstacle that I have heard from several families who were trying to get the big national crime shows interested. The police department won't talk. Some of these big shows require police participation in every case they cover, and some only require it in cases where there just isn't a lot of information available otherwise, and Christie's case, unfortunately, fits into that. But the publicity around Holly Bobo's case did allow for some more local publicity on Christie's case. And that intensified slightly when two people, Mark and Jeff Piercy, were arrested in July 2014 and charged as accessories after the fact and tampering with evidence. The police had already arrested Zach Adams, Dylan Adams, Shane Austin, and Jason Autry in relation to Holly's kidnapping and murder. If you want more on the court case, I definitely recommend Court Junkie Podcast. Mark and Jeff Piercy were brothers, and they were Michael Piercy's cousins. The way they tie into the Holly Bobo case is that Jeff Piercy's roommate, a woman named Sandra King, told the police that Jeff showed her part of a recording that showed Zach Adams assaulting Holly Bobo. For those who followed the Holly Bobo case, you know that there was a lot of talk of a video of Holly being sexually assaulted. But in spite of checking every cell phone, police could get their hands on, this recording has not been found. Sandra told the police that she did not watch the entire video, but that Jeff had possession of it and his brother Mark was the one who shot it. The police had Sandra call Jeff, of course this is a recorded phone call, to try to get him to talk about the recording more and possibly give more information of it Maybe even confessed to it. Sandra said, quote, That video of Holly, if it had been you, I would have watched it. And Jeff replied, I know. The police interpreted this as Jeff acknowledging that he showed Sandra the recording. Jeff and Mark Piercy were arrested but the charges were dropped when the video could not be found and it was discovered that Jeff's ex-wife's name was Holly. So even if there was a video shown, it may have just been a recording that Jeff had of his ex-wife and Sandra misunderstood. But Jeff denied showing Sandra any video at all. He said he hadn't heard her clearly on the phone when she mentioned Holly, so when he replied, he didn't know what he was replying to entirely. Jeff believes that Sandra had made up the statement about seeing this video in the hopes of getting a deal for her son, who was serving time in prison. But since the Piercy name was back in the news, it did get a little bit more eyes on Christie's case. Though Holly Bobo's remains were found in September 2014, Christy remains missing. The impact of having a long-term missing person in a family is devastating. Kayla told me that she hears about families who get closer through their tragedy, but it ripped hers Apart. And as someone who reads about missing persons cases, as someone who talks to families, I can say that I hear the story about the trauma ripping families apart just as often as I hear people say it brings them closer together. Maybe we need to be more honest about this so that families like Kayla's don't feel alone the effects have rippled out down the generations. It changed how Teresa raised Kayla. It hurt Kayla's cousin, whose father was actually a Piercy. This is a small town, so everyone is related or connected somehow. But imagine growing up with half your family thinking the other half of your family either killed someone or covered up for it. And obviously, Teresa and that side of the family never put that on this little boy. They reassured him of his place in the family and how much he was loved, but that doesn't mean he didn't take on some of it himself, and it really did do a number on his self-esteem. Teresa had to keep working and raising Kayla even though she was so grief-stricken she couldn't eat and in the early days could hardly get up and put one foot in front of the other. Kayla had to grow up quickly, and at too young of an age, she learned that the world wasn't a safe place. And not just the world in a big, abstract way, but literally the people who lived a couple of streets over. And that continues because Kayla still lives in the area. She sees Michael's relatives around town frequently. She sees the people her mom used to hang out with. And it's hard not to wonder what they know and if they have the answer to her family's greatest tragedy. The hope is that someone will call in a tip, even anonymously, that will lead the family to Christie's remains. Let's not even worry about what happened, why it happened, or who did it. Where is Christie? is the number one question. After all this time, if they can recover just some of her remains, something they can bury, they want to do it. It's been over 20 years, and as Kayla told me, it's time for people to stop thinking about protecting themselves and time to come forward with what they know. Kayla has been in touch with a search group out of Kentucky who was willing to come in free of charge to conduct some searches on key properties and areas identified in the case. The only thing is that they need the cooperation of law enforcement. They won't come into an investigation without permission, and many of the areas they want to search are private property. The last Kayla heard before the interview I did with her, the police were not even returning the phone calls. Kayla wants people to know that her mother was a good person who got caught up in drugs. Until Kayla herself turned 26, she didn't really appreciate how young that was. And how many people do we know get clean in their 30s and their 40s? A lot. Christy was never given that chance. Though Kayla has some memories of her mom, she does rely a lot on family stories about Christy's smile and her sense of humor. Thankfully, Kayla has some home videos she can show to her own children where they can hear Christy say, I love you, Kayla. And her kids can feel connected to the grandmother they never met. Christy Annette Bagus-Moon was 26 years old when she went missing. She is 5'4 and 115 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. She was last seen in a brown button-down shirt, tan pants, a brown belt, and brown boots. If you have any information, please call the Decatur County Sheriff's Department at 731 852 3703. This phone number will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crimelines True Crime. Crimelines is on Patreon where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com/slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.